In Exodus chapter 5, Moses and Aaron go and they confront Pharaoh for the first time, telling them that the God of Israel has demanded that his people be set free, that they be enabled to go and to offer sacrifices to him and to worship. And Pharaoh asks a question, a question that is poignant, a question that is fair and legitimate of Moses and Aaron. He asks them, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? You see, Pharaoh believed himself to be the incarnation of two different Egyptian deities. And living in a time in which the power of the deity was set aside by the prosperity of his people... Here was Pharaoh, the most powerful man, the wealthiest man over the most powerful nation, being asked as though he had to live accountable to a God whose people he enslaved. A God whose people he had conquered, who called him master, who did as he wished. And so it seemed crazy, it seemed uh, uh, irrational that he would do what this God, so he says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And this is the very same question that Western civilization is asking today. The very same question. Who is the Lord that I should be accountable to him when I can already live as I wish? Who is the Lord that he gets to define morality and that his definition of morality is any more valid than my definition of morality? Who is the Lord that he should set me free? Why would I seek freedom in God when I can have freedom from God, when I can live a life totally autonomous and unaccountable. And so, it's this question. Asked so poignantly and honestly by Pharaoh, asked so poignantly and honestly by us, that Exodus seeks to answer. That in Genesis, we get the introduction to God. We get the introduction to theology, the introduction to our Creator. But it's in Exodus that we come to understand and see more clearly His character, His nature, his name, his willingness to, and to relate to his people. And so this morning what I want us to do is I want us to look at Exodus chapter 6 together. And we're going to see this clearer explanation of the character, nature, and work of God. So if you have your Bibles, would you go ahead and turn with me now to Exodus chapter 6. We'll read the first nine verses together. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. God's word says, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. 
Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. You may be seated this morning. The gospel always has something to say about the past, about the present, and about the future. The gospel is not three easy steps out of hell, three easy steps into heaven. No, the gospel is comprehensive. The gospel is integrated. The gospel is holistic. It's a total transformation of that which was cursed into that which was blessed. It's that God not only saves you from something, but God is saving you to something. That it's not just a sinner saved, but it's a, a, saint, a saint sanctified and then ultimately glorified. And this is what's coming into clearer and clearer focus in the book of Exodus. It's the holistic, all-changing, completely, totally comprehensive nature of God's relationship with his people that he is trying to bring to bear in the heart of Moses, Aaron, and his people. The first thing that I want you to see this morning about the past, present, and future nature of the work of the gospel is that the proven power of God's love secures your future. The proven power of God's love secures your future. See, everybody is wrestling with who God is. That's true in ancient Egypt, and that's true in Chakalaka today. Everybody is trying to figure out exactly who God is. In chapter 4, we see almost this conversion experience for, for Israel. They come, and having not heard from God, they declare that God is the God above all gods and begin to sacrifice and worship and bow down to Him in submission. But no sooner do they worship God in chapter 4, they begin to doubt God and question God's servants in chapter 5. Pharaoh takes away the straw and increases the labor on, his pe on the people of Israel. And they begin to say, who are you, Moses? Why have you done such evil to us? Why have you brought this to us? Moses, if there was anybody that ought to have reason to have total confidence in God, it would have been Moses. Moses is the one that had the very burning bush. Moses is the one that gets the clarion call to go and to deliver God's people from Egypt. And yet, chapter 5 ends with Moses asking God, God, how could you? I'm going to impugn your character. How could you do that to me? How could you do such evil things to your servant?" And of course, we've already heard how Pharaoh was questioning. And so you have all the main characters and all the main players in the story. And what all of them have in common is that they are wrestling with God. And what we have here at the beginning of chapter 6 is God saying, Okay, I'll pull back the curtain then. You want to know who I am? I'll show you who I am. You want a reminder of my nature? You want a reminder of my name? You want a reminder of who I've been? You want a reminder of what I'm doing? You want me to establish who I'm going to make you to be? Here's what I'm going to do, Moses. I'm going to tell you exactly what's going to happen, exactly what the days ahead are going to tell. And when you look back and you remember this moment, you will be able to know, you will be able to know that I am the Lord, that I am the one that is ruling over all situations and all circumstances, that I am the one that is able to deliver my people and to transform them. And so the first thing that you see pointed out by God to Moses as he begins to pull back the curtain is that it's him that has been behind it all from the beginning. That it's him that's been behind it all from the beginning. He starts by looking into the past. He says, did Abraham come looking for me? Did Abraham come seeking after me? Was Abraham pursuing a relationship with me? No, I appeared to Abraham. 
I appeared to Abraham. I found Abraham by my sovereign grace, by my electing kindness. I have come to Abraham, and I have chosen Abraham, and I credited to Abraham his faith as righteousness. Abraham had no clue who I was. I appeared to him. That's on me. Did, did, did Abraham go and seek an inheritance of Canaan? Did he believe that he was entitled to the land of Canaan? No, I have made the covenant with Abraham. I am the one that promised to him Canaan. I am the one that affirmed that promise again to Isaac and then once more to Jacob. That was me all those years ago. I am the one that appeared. I am the one that made the covenant. I am the one that made the promise. But here today, here today I hear the groanings of my people. I have not gone. I have not faded away. I am not faded into the history books or into oblivion. No, here I am. I hear my people. I see their oppression. I know their slavery. I sympathize with their plight. I am here. I hear the groanings of my people. And here's the future. I remember my covenant. God had never forgotten his covenant, y'all. God had never forgotten his covenant. So why does he say I remember it? Here's what he's saying. I'm about to take action. I'm about to take action. I'm about to bring the promise that I have made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to you. I'm about to take that promise and I'm about to bring it into implementation. I am about to deliver you from the hand of your oppressor and into the promised land. And so from past to present to future, God is there. And God is at work. That's his point to Moses. And that is for us a shadow of the gospel. The God who saved us yesterday. He is here listening and working among us today. And is still transforming us for a promised future that is yet to come. And that's why God places such great emphasis on his name. That's why God places so, such great emphasis on his name. He starts out by saying what? He says, I am the Lord. Now... For all of you Bible scholars, you'll notice there that Lord is in all caps, right? So what does that mean? That means that it's actually the name Yahweh. It's the, the covenant name. Anytime you see Lord, all caps in the Bible, see, they, the, the people of God so revered their God that they would not even speak his covenant name out loud. They would not say Yahweh. They might say Jehovah. They would say Lord. And so even in the scripture, they would write it, and they would write it. And so it's written in all caps that we might know exactly who it's talking about, that this is the Lord that we're talking about. This is Yahweh. This is the I Am. But do you notice what he says? He says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. I appeared to, God, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. That I did not appear to them as Yahweh. I did not appear to them as the covenant God. I appeared to them as El Shaddai. I appeared to them as the God who is omnipotent. I appeared to them as the God who creates everything from nothing, ex nihilo. I appeared to them as the one that dug the oceans and mounted the, the stars and, and built up the mountain. I appeared to them as El Shaddai. But now, here I am, I'm going to appear to you as Yahweh. Now, this doesn't mean that, that they had no concept of the name Yahweh prior to Exodus. In fact, we see Lord in all caps throughout the book of Genesis. They knew the name. They didn't understand it. They didn't fully grasp it. See, they had the promises. They're so much like us, y'all. They had the promises, but they had not seen the promises fulfilled. They had the covenant, but they had not seen the covenant come to full fruition. They had the assurance of Canaan, but they, did not, they were not the, the inhabitants or the owners of Canaan. They had not received Canaan yet as their inheritance. 
They knew that they would be a blessing to all nations as a nation, but they weren't yet a nation, and they weren't yet as a nation being a blessing to all nations. And so, yeah, they, they had the name, they had the promises, but they had not seen the fulfillment yet. They had not seen the future come to bear. And so the assurance that he's here giving to Moses and to Aaron and to the people of Israel is you're going to know my name. You are going to see the promises fulfilled. You are going to see the covenants upheld. You are going to walk in the land that flows with milk and honey. And everywhere your feet step, that's going to be yours. That's going to be a reminder of my goodness. That's going to be an assurance of my love. You see here, what we have is that we have God's almighty power being joined together with God's relentless covenant love. And as God's almighty power is joining together with his relentless covenant love so that the promises of the past and the oppression of the present might come together as a crescendo to the experience of the fulfillment of the promises tomorrow. That's what I understand him to mean when he says, I established my covenant and now I have remembered it. It's that he is going to bring it into fruition. That any time in the scriptures you hear God saying, I remember something, it is God saying, I am about to take action on a promise that I have made to you. I am about to bring that promise into fulfillment. I am about to show you by my love and by my power who I am and who I have made you now to be. You see, God has made his covenant by love, but now he is taking responsibility for that covenant by his power. I want you to think about for a second. What does it mean that El Shaddai, the Almighty One, is at the same time Yahweh, the covenant God? Y'all tracking with me? You have the God who makes everything. The God to whom all are accountable, all creatures, us, made in his image to reflect him. He is the one that the, that the mountains bow down and the heavens declare his handiwork. He is the one that all of the creation is singing of his majesty, of his brilliance, of his incomparability. And yet he has aimed his love. He has aimed his power. He has aimed his might upon a people, upon a people that will know the fullness of his strength, the fullness of his power, the fullness of his might through the experience of a powerful, overwhelming, saving love. See, there is nothing that God can't do. There is nothing that God wants to do that he can't accomplish. And here he is taking all of his omnipotence, all of his might, and he is channeling all of that power, all of that might into his covenant with them. And now with us. See, throughout the big story, what we're going to hear time and again is about these covenants, right? Covenants are a major theme in the scripture. We have the old covenant and the new covenant preeminently, right? You know what covenants are? God's covenants are his power aimed by his love. God's covenants are his power aimed by his love. They are God's terrifying might leveraged by his awesome love for the salvation, transformation, and blessing of his people. See, how is it that Israel could know that they weren't going to be made fools before Pharaoh? That's his point here. How is it that Moses could go and confront the mightiest man in all the world, the wealthiest man in all the world, a man who had deified himself? How was it that he was going to go and confront a man like this who had been their oppressors and not be totally made a fool, not ultimately end up in prison or, or executed, hanging from the, side of, from the tall gallows of the Egyptians? And how is it that you can know? How is it that you can walk counterculturally in your high school? 
How is it that you can live at work in a way that makes everybody else mock you or make you have to eat lunch by yourself? How is it that you can know that the denial in your life that you're experiencing and the sacrifices that you've underwent now, how is it that you can know that one day you're not going to be made a fool? That's the point. That the proven power of God's love verifies for his people the security of their future no matter what they right now see. That the power of the past in light of the problems that you now see secures the future that you haven't seen yet. It secures the reality that you will not be humiliated in the eyes of God. No, you will be glorified in his kingdom when everybody else is bowing down, declaring for the first time that he is the Lord. See, that's why we live for the name of God. That's why we live for the fame of God. That's why we sacrifice what we have right now that nations that we've never heard, visited, or seen might hear the glory of his name. That's why we risk being insulted and mocked at college so that those that we sit in biology 101 with might know the truth of the glory of the gospel. That's why we train up our children in a way that is going to make them less popular and not more popular. That's why we do that. Because we have entered, like Israel, into covenant with God to be saved even though we struggle with basic morality. We have entered into covenant that says we will be faithful even though we struggle with something as simple as talking to God. That we will be secured forever, even though we tremble at the smallest unpleasantry. We will rest forever with Christ, even though it feels like to us that we're unraveling and coming apart. That the assurance is his name. He is the God who is mighty to create, and yet though mighty to create, he is willing to save. See, the gospel, the gospel is God channeling his power through his love to secure us forever. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. It is his might aimed by his love that is able to do what is otherwise impossible, even more impossible than overcoming all of Egypt to save us, to save me, to sanctify me, to sanctify you, to secure me, to secure you, and to ultimately glorify us together with him. Do you see how the gospel is past, present, and future? You see how the gospel is anchored in what God has done, is here manifesting in what God is about, is in the process of doing, and is preparing us for what God is about to do? The gospel is past, the gospel is present, and the gospel is future. The last thing that I want us to see this morning, the last way I want us to see how the, the gospel works in the past, the present, and the future is that the joy of redemption redefines your future. The joy of redemption redefines your future. You probably even noticed when I was reading the text this morning that there were a series of I will statements. There is in our text, actually, between verses 6 through 8, there are seven I will statements. And they they jump out, right? And it's actually a form that we're going to find throughout the scriptures that often he'll come with these series of seven declarations of of who he is or seven declarations of, of what he's about to do. And it's his way of saying, listen up, listen up. I've got something to say. I've got something important for you. And here, what we see is that these seven I will statements are building upon one another. That they start in one place, but they have a particular end in mind. First, you'll notice that the first three I will statements, they're kind of, or actually all of them are anchored in this, what he says. He says, I am the Lord. He says that three different times, doesn't he? 
He says, I am the Lord. And then he says, I will, I will, I will. I am the Lord. I will, I will. I am the Lord. I will. Right? And the reason that he's saying that is that God's activity flows from his identity. God's activity flows from his identity. He is, and so he does. I am, so I will. And what we see in these I will statements is, if you'll notice in those first three, is they're all basically describing the same thing. He says, I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. But I think the way that we should see is those first two I will statements are telling us what he's going to do. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. And that third one is how he's going to accomplish it. I will bring you out. I will deliver you by, by redeeming you, by ransoming you. See, in Exodus chapter 4, it tells us something extraordinary about God. He calls Israel for the first time his firstborn son. That God has adopted the people of Israel as his family. That he has made them, they are not mighty, they are not the oldest nation, they are not the, the greatest nation, they are not the, the most famous nation. None of those are the reason why he uses firstborn. That's going to be really important to interpret Colossians chapter 1, by the way, if you're, if you're familiar with that passage. No, they are his firstborn son because they are preeminent in his covenant. They are his firstborn son because they are the target of his love. They are his firstborn son because they are, the, they are the target of his affection, the target of his passion, the target of his redemption. You see, redeeming, redemption is a family responsibility. Redemption is a family responsibility. Redemption is going to take a major role, play a major role in the life of Israel. And the redeemer was like a family advocate. Or a family champion. A person in the family might be in debt and unable to pay the debt. And the Redeemer, they would go and they would pay off the debt for the person so that they could be free. A, a, a woman in the family might be widowed. And being widowed, she had no livelihood. She, and if she had no heir, if she had no firstborn son herself, she really was left to begging. She was at the mercy of others. And so the Redeemer would come and he would marry her. And he would seek to give her an heir, a heritage, standing in the community, a livelihood. Someone might be so poor that they would sell themselves into slavery so that they could pay off their bills. So that they might have food to eat and a, a place to live. And the Redeemer, he would go and, and he would buy, pay their master and buy their way out of, out of slavery and, and bring them into their house. Someone might be in prison. They may have even been on death row, but the Redeemer could go and he could, he could pay the debt. He could pay off the ransom that was owed for that man so that he might be bailed out of jail and exonerated from his charges and brought back into the fold of the family. So at times, it was the result of sin. At other times, it was the result of misfortune in their life. But here we see what redemption is. We see the redemption that is so often sung about by churches and talked about and exposited in the scriptures. And is that redemption is securing someone's future by paying for their past. Redemption is securing someone's future by paying for their past. It's a ransom paid at the expense of the Redeemer. And that's how God is going to liberate Israel and y'all, that's how God's going to liberate us. That's how God's going to liberate the greater Israel. That's how God is going to set free his church. He's going to liberate Israel, it says, with an outstretched arm at the expense of his 
effort, at the expense of his energy. But one day he is going to liberate the church. He is going to liberate the greater Israel through his truer and greater and more faithful firstborn son, the risen Christ Jesus. And here's the power of this. That redemption isn't just for the purpose of setting free and then leaving you alone. No, no, it changes everything. Redemption reshapes reality. Redemption reshapes reality. It comes with an expectation of gratitude and servitude. But it's not servitude out of drudgery. It's servitude out of passion. It's servitude out of joy. It's servitude out of thankfulness. It's servitude because you have seen the kindness of your Redeemer. You have seen the goodness of your Redeemer. You have seen the sacrifice of the Redeemer. And you want to honor his name. You want to honor his house. This is God's point when he gives us the second two I will statements. He says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Do you know what he's saying? It's extraordinary, especially if you understand the context in which it's given. He said, I'm going to live with my people. I am going to live. I'm going to bring them out of Egypt. I'm going to part the Red Sea. I'm going to feed them from the skies. I'm going to give them a drink of water from the rocks. And then, then up on Sinai, I'm going to be there. In the midst of the tabernacle, I'm going to be there. In the temple, I'm going to be there. In fact, in the new covenant that I'm going to bring through my greater firstborn son, I am going to indwell them bodily as living temples themselves with my very Holy Spirit. That I am going to reshape the reality of daily life in the lives of my people because my presence, my presence is not going to be nebulous. I'm not going to be floating around like all the other false gods. I'm not going to be a little wooden statue in a closet. No, my presence is going to dwell within the heart of my people. I am going to transform them. I am going to reshape who they are. I will be their God. They will be my people. It is the covenant in essence that his presence is there and his holy presence reshapes and redefines daily life then and daily life now. Y'all, that's the formula for durable joy. That's the formula for durable joy. The formula for durable joy is though I am oppressed, my God is with me. Though it looks as though nothing is going rightly and the most powerful man in my life is bearing down on me, my God is with me. The God who provides, he's with me. The God who defends, he is with me. The God who creates, he is with me. El Shaddai is my covenant God. The Almighty is the one who has made me his beloved. And he lives with me. So I can be joyful today. Bring on what you've got, world. Bring on what you've got, suffering. Bring on what you've got, circumstances. I have the Lord. I have the Lord. You see, redemption, redemption is a reset. Redemption is a reset. It's the restoration of value. It's the attainment of purpose. It's the realization of freedom. You were a slave, but someone paid you out. You were a debtor, but someone paid off your debt. You were destitute, but someone gave you a house. You were under the penalty of death, but someone paid your price. Now let me ask you, what is the rational response in a situation like that? Is there anything rational other than just raw, unfiltered joy? You see, redemption is the expectation, comes with the expectation and the anticipation of joy. Redemption comes with the anticipation and expectation of joy. That's what it's like to live life with God in the midst of, your, of his people. That's what Jesus is talking about, right? 
Abide with me and your joy will be full. Live in me. I and you will be joined together like a, like, a, like a vine and his branches will be bound together so much so that I'm going to write the law on the tablet of your heart. I'm going to circumcise your heart. I'm going to transform you from the inside out. I am going to abide with you so now, now your joy can be full. See, joy is an expression of gratitude to your Redeemer. It's the perspective that you need whenever you're battling with, with anger and bitterness toward God. I wonder how many of you feel that way. See, that was what Moses was struggling with. That's what Israel was struggling with. God keeps making all these promises, but I don't seem to see all these promises coming to bear in my life. God keeps calling me to all these great works, but every time I try to do what God has called me to do, my life gets harder, not easier. Worse, not better. So, so God, why would you do such evil to me? And you know what God is saying? He's saying to Moses what he is saying to you. You take the bitterness that you have toward God. You take the anger that you have toward God. You take the poison that's in your soul and you drag it into the house of your Redeemer. And in the house of your Redeemer, your bitterness will not survive. Your self-pity cannot stand. Your misery will not endure. Because in the house of your Lord, the joy is durable and abiding and impenetrable. But redemption doesn't just change you right now. Redemption doesn't just reshape reality. Redemption redefines your future. Redemption redefines your future. You'll see here that God has far more in view than just taking them out of Egypt. God is not just saving them from something. God is not just rescuing them from something. God is saving them for something. God is saving them for the land that he has provided for them. He is saving them for the inheritance that, that he has purchased for them. He is saving them for the joy that he has set before them. He was redeeming them for a fuller life, a more abundant life, a more joyful future. He's taking them to the promised land. It's going to be a total transformation for Israel, you see. They're going to go from being slaves not just from being delivered as slaves, but to being their own nation. Not just from being their own nation, but to being a great nation, a mighty nation. Not just being a mighty nation, but a nation that will produce the Messiah through whom all the nations will be blessed. All the nations will be turned into a chorus in heaven, declaring the glories of God and experiencing the kindness of God forever. This is what Paul's talking about. This is what he has in view when he talks in Galatians chapter 4. This is what he says. When time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. In other words, he paid the ransom that the law required. The law was always pointing to you and declaring you unholy. The law was always pointing to you and declaring for you a death sentence. The law was always pointing to you and calling you a debtor, calling you a slave to sin. But Christ came and Christ paid the ransom that the law declared, that he was righteous where you were not righteous. He paid off the debt that you could not pay. He took your debt and he nailed it to the tree, right? And because you were sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. He has reshaped reality. He has redeemed us 
to fill us and to reshape us, to reshape how we live right now. Though I am not holy, though I am wretched in my sin, now I am indwelt with the very presence of the Holy Spirit. So now my worldview is transforming. My perspective is transforming. My value system is changing. My, my reality is being reshaped. And he says, crying, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Do you see that? Redefined future. So he redeems me. It reshapes my reality right now, but then it redefines my future. Now, in Christ, because of the ransom that he paid to the law on my behalf, now I have an inheritance. Now I am secured in his kingdom. Now I can't be taken from his hand. Now I abide with Christ where my joy can be full. In other words, it's going to be a total transformation. It's going to be a total transformation in us. That the redemption of Exodus and the redefining of Israel's identity, the reshaping of Israel's future is a light that shines upon your own identity and your own future so that you can understand them and love them better. You were slaves with an inheritance of misery, but Christ has paid the ransom. Christ has set you free. Christ purchased your inheritance. So Christ redeemed who you were to reshape who you are and to redefine who you now will be. And you will be an heir. See, it's the gospel that redeems us and pays for our past, and it is the gospel that reshapes and redefines our future. The gospel is past, present, and future. That's the big story. That's the big story. That's what's unfolding before us from Genesis to Revelation. Let's pray together. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at 9 o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.